So today was somewhat of a gray day. (laughs) And I know sometimes that grayness, the rain gently falling, helps to make us feel like we're sitting in a little cocoon inside our shawls. And at other times, we start to feel like we're really confined, (laughs) and the space gets very tight. And I'm not sure tonight's talk is going to lift any of that grayness. (laughs) I want to talk about forgiveness. And for me, it often feels like one of the most sobering talks that I give because it really delves right into that place that is so hard to let go, that is so hard to release. And we've heard a lot about letting go or letting flow, as Joseph puts it. And yet there does come these moments that are just so excruciating you know, we're sitting here, and a memory pop, pops up of something somebody did 10 years ago, or maybe something somebody did yesterday. And it just becomes unbearable. And the mind keeps going back to it over and over again. And in these times, we really realize how essential forgiveness is but can feel at such a loss of how to forgive, how to let go, how to relinquish our suffering, and instead feel caught. A description I once heard about forgiveness is, it's the most tender part of love. I think this gives us some guidelines as to how to work with forgiveness. That because it is where we are most vulnerable, where we have been hurt the deepest, that we can only do it with a, with a tender care. No, it's very much like the hand of a surgeon. We have to do it carefully. We have to do it in accordance with the seasons. When the time, when the mind is in a place of balance. We have to do it with honesty. Being able to open to the feelings that are present. We have to remember that it's a process. It's nothing we can force. It's like taking a thorn out of our hearts, a thorn that pierces or lacerates. Doing so skillfully, and with respect. Forgiveness has its own strength. This strength is depicted in a line from Walt Whitman, where he likens it to the fragrance that the violet sheds 
on the heel that has crushed it. This line really gets me. (laughs) The fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. It just permeates. It just is. Forgiveness is the releasing of that fragrance. It helps us to shed our brutality and touch these places of tenderness. Without forgiveness, we only continue to carry around our wounds from the past. We'll continue to have pockets of our hearts and minds that recoil in fear, disappointment, guilt, and shame, or lash out in anger and rage. So forgiveness helps us to release all of this held energy. And as we know from practice, it takes a lot of energy to hold back, to stay confined. Forgiveness helps to open up the doorway of this moment to its full potential. I'd like to read a passage by Desmond Tutu, who um, he was the chairman of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Board. I'm not sure if he still is. But as you can imagine, this board was faced with a lot of great challenges. And this is called A Chance to Begin Again. Forgiveness is taking seriously the awfulness of what has happened when you are treated unfairly. It is opening the door for the other person to have a chance to begin again. Without forgiveness, resentment builds in us, a resentment which turns into hostility and anger. Hatred eats away at our well-being. In Africa, we have a word, Ubuntu, which is difficult to render in Western languages. It speaks about the essence of being human, that my humanity is caught up in your humanity because we say a person is a person through other persons. In our African understanding, we get great store by communal peace and harmony. Anything that subverts this harmony is injurious, not just to the community, but to all of us, And therefore, forgiveness is an absolute necessity for continued human existence. All of the wars that have been fought, all of the ways that we need reconciliation in this world, only possible through forgiveness. And it seems to be that no matter how deeply we understand this intellectually, when we are really faced with forgiving in our day-to-day lives, it can be so heart-wrenching. And, you know, living in the world today, there can be so many ways we are called upon to forgive again and again. But forgiveness will never be possible when we think that it means suppression of abuse or violence. When we think this, it only keeps us 
in the state of fear. So as I go through the talk tonight, I'd like for you to remember the words of Desmond Tutu when he says, Forgiveness is taking seriously the awfulness that has happened when you are treated unfairly. And our way of doing this has to be through wisdom. It has to be through clear seeing that is deeper than our reactions to the abuse that we are witnessing. We cannot be motivated by revenge and retaliation. Needing to have an intention that is rooted in the service and welfare of all living beings. So we use our practice to discover how this is possible. We use our practice to strengthen our commitment to living in a way of non-harming. We become motivated by the call to alleviate suffering, strengthening our commitment to awakening itself, to liberating the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. I'd already mentioned earlier in the retreat that when I was a teenager, I felt a lot of despair at the world that I saw around me, a world so filled with injustice, anger. I also experienced what Michelle talked about the other night, the feeling of helplessness, feeling powerless within this. There seemed no way to make a difference. And I think this is quite a common feeling for many youth in the world. How can our lives make a difference? I understand more why now that I thought that nothing was possible. Because my reactions were so rooted in the same anger and rage that I saw around me. I was caught in my own reaction. I was lost in the world of brutality, a brutality that I perceived to be outside of myself. Many years later, when I was quietly sitting on my cushion, there came a torrent of rage in my own mind and it plagued me for many months. I'd always thought of myself as being a reasonably kind person. And when this rage released itself, I was shocked. Here were the same mind states that I knew were the mind states that fueled wars, that caused violence, caused harm in this world. And here it was, right inside my own mind. It became a turning point in my life. 
but it was only possible when I stopped blaming the world around me, and I took a good, honest look within. It was very humbling. It demanded that I feel the pain of entanglement with these mind states, that I felt the bitterness that I carried in my heart, and I could no longer condemn those who had started the wars, who had beaten other people, who had lashed out in anger or violence, because these same seeds were inside my own mind. What arose to some degree in my mind at that time was compassion, compassion for both myself, this being that was caught in suffering, and compassion for others, knowing how deep their pain was. At another point in life, I realized the possibility of continuing to honor love, or the truth of love, in the face of anger. I still feel only a real beginner at this, but I've seen in small ways how the heart that remains filled with love in the face of anger can have a profound effect. I'd like to tell a story that um, is an ancient Buddhist story, and this is in the version that Nyanaponika Tara gave to it. It's called Anger, the Anger-Eating Demon. Once there lived a demon who had a peculiar diet. He fed on the anger of others, and as his feeding ground was the human world, there was no lack of good food for him. He found it quite easy to provoke a family quarrel or national and racial hatred. Even to stir up a war was not very difficult for him. And whenever he succeeded in causing a war, he could properly gorge himself without much further effort. Because once a war starts, hate multiplies by its own momentum and affects even normally friendly people. So the demon's food supply became so rich that he sometimes had to restrain himself from overeating, being content with nibbling just a small piece of resentment found close by. But as it often happens with successful people, he became rather overbearing. And one day, when feeling bored, he thought, shouldn't I try it with the gods? On reflection, he chose the heaven of the 33 deities, ruled by Saka, lord of gods. He knew that only a few of these gods had entirely eliminated the fetters of ill will and aversion though they were far above petty and selfish quarrels. So by the magic power he transferred himself to that heavenly realm and was lucky enough to come at a time when Sakya, the divine king, was absent. There was none in the large audience hall, and without much ado, the demon seated himself on Sakya's empty throne, waiting quietly for things to happen which he hoped would bring him a good feed. Soon some of the gods came to the hall, and first they could hardly believe their own divine eyes when they saw that ugly demon 
sitting up on the throne, squat and grinning. Having recovered from their shock, they started to shout and lament, Oh, you ugly demon! How can you dare to sit on the throne of our Lord? What utter cheekiness! What a crime! You should be thrown headlong into the hell and straight into a boiling cauldron. You should be quartered alive. Be gone! Be gone! But while the gods were growing more and more angry, the demon was quite pleased because from moment to moment he grew in size, in strength, and in power. The anger he absorbed into his system started to ooze from his body as a smoky, red, glowing mist. This evil aura kept the gods at a distance, and their radiance was dimmed. Suddenly, a bright glow appeared at the other end of the hall, and it grew into a dazzling light from which Saka emerged, the king of the gods, he who had firmly entered the undeflectable stream that leads Nibbana wards, was unshaken by what he saw. The smoke screen created by the god's anger parted when he slowly and politely approached the usurper. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I didn't notice that word there before. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> the usurper of this is throne. Welcome, friend. Please remain seated. I can take another chair. May I offer you the drink of hospitality? Our Amrita is not bad this year. Or do you prefer a stronger brew, the Vedic Soma? While Saka spoke these friendly words, the demon rapidly shrank to a diminutive size and finally disappeared, trailing behind a whiff of smoke, which likewise soon dissolved. I don't know if in your life you've had the opportunity to really stand up in the face of anger, to not be thrown by it, to remain faithful to the truth of love in that moment. But it's a very powerful experience. It's funny because it's actually a reoccurring dream I have in my own life that over and over again I find myself having to stand up to really speak out when I'm in the midst of a very difficult situation. The first thing is just feeling the power of staying rooted, staying connected in that moment. The second is to feel the power of kindness and how transformative it can be. It recently happened for me with someone who is quite dear to me, but I had struggled with a lot in my life, that I had this experience. And in just being able to keep my heart open in that moment, it felt like many, many acts that had happened in the past were able to dissolve in that one moment of kindness.
Sometimes it involves taking a risk because the habit of anger is so strong. Just needing to remember in this moment that something else is possible. There is another way where we can stay connected. But in order to do this, we have to stop the wars in our own minds. A number of years ago during the Korean War, Paul Reps, who was a longtime meditator and writer, was trying to go to Japan to study and practice in a Zen monastery in Kyoto. At this, at this time, visas were not being issued to non-military Westerners. Nevertheless, Paul Reps, with his determination, filed the necessary papers at the Asian Immigration Office. He was told it would not be possible for him to visit Japan as he was not militarily allied. Sitting opposite the immigration officer, he turned his visa request over and on the back of it wrote, Making a cup of green tea, I stop the war, and handed it back to the official across the desk. The immigration officer took a long look at what he'd written, reading it silently to himself, making a cup of green tea, I stop the war. Turning the paper over, he initialed approval for reps to enter into Japan. Looking up, he said, we need more people like you in our country right now. We need more people in the world like this. Urgently, we need to stop the cycles of violence and struggle. And the place to begin being right inside our own hearts and minds. So long as we are harboring hatred, the wars will continue. So long as we can't forgive others, separation and alienation will continue. It's as if we live in a time where what is being asked of us is that we awaken. Yesterday in the metta practice, we began working with the difficult person. It may not have been the beginning of the difficult person for us. You know, sometimes in metta practice, working with our dear friends, we start to see anything appear that they've ever done that hurt or harmed us. We start to remember things we've done that have hurt or harmed ourselves. Sitting in practice can be such a constant flow of these memories. Needing to listen when this happens. Needing to feel the heart in this moment. When we shut anyone out of our hearts, it's we who suffer. It's the closing off of our hearts that is the real suffering. And when we close off our hearts, there's no way that we can even begin to touch the pain of the other. 
and then the trenches between us become even vaster. There's a story about two former prisoners of war meeting several years later. One asked the other, Have you forgiven your captors? The other replied, No, never. The first prisoner looked at his friend with total kindness and said, Well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? We only need to realize that we have the key to let ourselves out of the prisons. So our practice becomes one of forgiveness, forgiveness that unburdens us from the past, touching in ourselves our own pain as well as the pain of others, and releasing, letting go, relinquishing of the suffering. When we are working with people that have hurt or harmed us, it's important to remember that by opening our hearts and letting go of the past, it doesn't mean that we condone their actions. More to the point is that we are reclaiming our power to keep our hearts open. If we don't, we have succumbed to the great burning fire of anger and rage, and the loss of our own dignity. As I mentioned in the metta practice yesterday, the basis of our forgiving is we, when we can once again see the other person as a fellow human being, being able to touch into basic humanity, how they share the same intrinsic wish for happiness that we share. The Dalai Lama describes how we can relate with worth and dignity to all beings in this way. He says, you can relate to them because you are still a human being within the human community. You share that bond, and that human bond is enough to give rise to worth and dignity. That bond can become a source of consolation in the event that you lose everything. So sharing basic humanity with all beings. It's also helpful to remember that as well as this same basic wish for happiness that we share, we are also subject to the same forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the spell of delusion is so strong. And it will keep us in the realms of suffering. It will keep us looking for happiness in misguided ways. So often when we harm others or ourselves, it's because we are in the place of suffering and cannot see clear of it very likely when the other person harmed us, that they were also in a place of separation and pain. It's when we're disconnected that we do such things. Remembering in ourselves how painful it is to be in this place. Knowing how great their pain is, we see that this is the very place 
that loving-kindness is needed. Where anger is present, love is needed. People acting in harmful ways do so out of ignorance. The possibility of breaking the chain is through love. And we find this love when we have the willingness to stand in the shoes of the other. This is where we allow compassion to open our hearts to the other. There's a very touching story about the power of empathy in forgiving. (coughs) The story is about, um, comes from a man named Everett Worthington, who had co-written a book called To Forgive is Human, How to Put Your Past in the Past. Only days after he finished writing the book, Everett's mother was beaten to death by burglars entering her home. Shortly after, as rage bubbled up in him, he found himself thinking dramatic thoughts of revenge. Then the writing of his own book challenged him. Did he really believe what he had written? Could he empathize with the person who had murdered his mother? These are in his own words. That night, I pictured the crime scene. I imagined how a pair of youths might feel as they stood in the dark street preparing to rob the house. Perhaps they had been caught at a robbery previously. They would have been keyed up. The house was dark. No car in the driveway. No one's home, they must have thought. Perhaps one said they're at a New Year's Eve party. They couldn't know that Mama didn't drive. A quick rap of the crowbar and they were in, hastily emptying drawers, dumping the contents on the floor. I imagined their shock when her voice came from behind. What are you doing in here? Oh no, one must have thought. I've been seen. I'll go to jail. She's ruining my life. He lashed out with his crowbar, slamming my mother three times. Panicked, the youth went crazy, trashing the house, both for having their plans ruined and for the shame of having murdered. I felt I understood better what happened. Who murdered my mom did a terrible thing. Nothing will change that. Through empathy, however, I saw that he had lashed out in fear, panic, guilt, and anger. I thought of how I had talked about beating him to death with a baseball bat. I was willing to do what he did, only with more forethought, more naked malice than he. Whose heart is darker, I spoke aloud. When I saw the evil that I was capable of plotting, I was humbled. I saw my own guilt over-plotting revenge. As a Christian, I believed that even as I confessed, confessed my evil intent, I would receive divine forgiveness for it. I felt that forgiveness flood me. I knew that the youth, too, needed forgiveness. How could I withhold what the youth needed? So I forgave him, and I have since felt peace. People sometimes find it hard to believe I could forgive so quickly. In fact, though, 
I wish such rapid forgiveness were always available. Forgiveness more often takes time. Time to feel empathy with the person who harms us, and more time to get to the point where we're ready to forgive. I only know that in the three years since that night, I haven't felt the hostility or desire for revenge that I had at times before felt for people who have inflect, inflect, <laughs> inflicted lesser hurts on me. Forgiveness did not shorten my grief. For over a year afterward, I would periodically be overcome with sorrow. The blessing was that I did not also have to deal with my own hatred and bitterness. power of empathy, being able to step outside our own shoes and wear the shoes of the other. It's where we view life through their eyes and touch their pain. To have the courage to feel the disparity that arises in our lives. What's it like to be walking in their shoes? To know that another is in need of love in just the same way that we are. I had a, have a friend who shared with me a story where she was in a situation where she felt like a have-not. There was something that she really wanted, and it wasn't available to her but it was available to others who had more than what she had. And it brought up in her feelings of powerlessness, futility, and anger. This person also works with people on a daily basis who are the underprivileged in the society. She said it helped her to see how it is for inner-city youth, where they feel like they're faced with a world that is not open to them, and that they see the only means of getting what they want through the means of crime and violence. They're looking for their own happiness and unfortunately seeking it in misguided ways. There's also the power of seeing the goodness in others. There was a young Jewish woman named Etty Hillesum who lived in Holland during the time of Nazi occupation. Despite the difficult circumstances that surrounded her, it became a time of great spiritual growth for her. Amidst the horrors of injustice, she became an example of the strength and endurance and of the capacity of the human heart to love. She spent the last few months of her life in a transit camp named Westerbork before she died in Auschwitz. Surrounded by some of the worst atrocities this world has ever seen, she says in a letter written to her friend Maria, Many feel that their love of mankind languishes at Westerbork 
because it receives no nourishment, meaning that people here don't give you so much occasion to love them. Someone said, the mass is a hideous monster. Individuals are pitiful. But I keep discovering that there is no causal connection between people's behavior and the love you feel for them. Love for one's fellow man is like an elemental glow that sustains you. The fellow man has hardly anything to do with it. Oh, Maria, it's a little bear of love here, and I myself feel so inexpressibly rich, I cannot explain it. But I keep discovering that there is no causal connection between people's behavior and the love you feel for them. Love for one's fellow man is like an elemental glow that sustains you. Love is vastly bigger than any individual. It is what sustains us. It is what nourishes us. Our difficult people, our enemies, these are the people that have so much to teach us. How many times have you noticed the qualities that you so dislike in another person are the same qualities that you have trouble with in yourself? By having them reflected back to us, it gives us the chance to accept ourselves on deeper and deeper levels. Our enemies have this way of showing us where we are stuck. They're able to show us things our dearest friends can't show us. And in the end, they show us that we too have the capacity to love. However noble forgiveness may be, it's often a difficult process. And it becomes more painful when it's based upon should. I should be able to forgive. I should be able to let go. I should be able to go beyond this. Then, if the truth of the situation is that we're really at our edge, and we can't find the place of forgiveness, it only brings up more self-hatred and anger. It needs to be approached with great patience. Our capacity in that moment may be to rest in our intention to forgive. Once again, having to surrender to the process. But it does no good to judge ourselves or beat ourselves up any further. As we can, relinquishing the mental states of guilt, resentment, and bright blame. But you know, at times just resting in the intention to forgive. This in itself helps to soften the heart. Sometimes we approach forgiveness 
In a similar way, we approach a day of practice, you know, getting up and, and thinking, okay, today I'll be mindful all day. And as we know, we can only do it moment by moment. So remembering, too, what we're looking to do is forgive for this moment, only one moment at a time. Rather than disempowering us, forgiveness takes us to the place of empowering. It allows us to hear with a clear and open mind. It doesn't mean that we continue to accept abusive behavior, but that we aren't so caught up in reaction and can respond from the place of wisdom and compassion. One of my own great discoveries was finding that I could say no with an open heart. This might be a little bit of a (laughs) no-brainer, but it was really significant to me when I discovered it. Now, I've been one of these people that every time I had to say no to somebody, I would just move into the state of aversion. And, you know, if I could, I'd possibly avoid the situation. It just was as if the no was the aversion. But then I just realized that I don't have to do that. I can hold the person in my heart as I say no. And of course, when I started to do this, I began to see what a difference it was than when I was saying no and having it be loaded with all my reactions. It was much easier for them to receive it. One of the hardest people for me to forgive on my own journey has been myself. Oftentimes we're so ready to forgive others long before we can forgive ourselves. We become very brutal with ourselves. It always kind of surprised me, and yet, you know, listening to other people, I I think that it's quite common And when we don't forgive ourselves, we sit in a cesspool of guilt and shame, seeing it repeatedly arise. And this, too, is very humbling. What I found was just staying conscious to it, to that place where it's painful. And then, you know, we're just not blindly putting layer over layer on our hearts. The impact begins to lessen. We open to loving ourselves just as we are. A story that recently very deeply touched me about the possibility of how deeply one can forgive oneself is a story that I'd heard many times. It just struck me in a new way. It's the story of Angulimala, I'll briefly retell the story of Angulimala for those of you who are not familiar with it. Angulimala lived during the time of the Buddha. He was a serial killer. He had been asked by a teacher of his 
to go out and bring back to his teacher as a sign of his devotion a garland of a thousand fingers from the right hand of human beings. So Angulimala took on this task. He was up to 999. And then, as he was waiting to get his final finger to complete his garland, he saw his mother off in the distance. He had decided that he would take the life of his mother. Now this is considered to be one of the worst crimes possible. Doing this means that one will certainly be reborn immediately in the hell realms. So the Buddha, with his eye of omniscience, saw what was happening. He saw the crime that was about to be committed. He also saw the potential for freedom in Angulimala's mind. So he traveled 30 miles to meet Angulimala. He arrived just before Angulimala's mother did. When Angulimala saw the Buddha whom he saw as a monk, he thought he would take the life of the monk rather than his mother. So he started chasing after the Buddha. He started walking very, very fast to catch him. The Buddha continued to walk steadily, but not quickly. So Angulimala quickened his pace. He got quicker and quicker. And still Angulimala could see the Buddha was just walking a normal pace. And then Angulimala was going as fast as he could, and he could not overtake the Buddha. So finally he called out, Stop, recluse, stop. The Buddha replied, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings, but you have no restraint towards things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped, and you have not. It is said of Angulimala On hearing these words, a great change of heart came over him. He realized who the Buddha was and that he had intuitively come into the forest to pull him back from the bottomless abyss of misery into which he was about to tumble. He was moved to the very roots of his being and pledged himself to a life of nonviolence. Angulimala went on to become an arhant, a fully enlightened being. And it did not happen for him that on his decision to become a monk, that things went easily or smoothly for him. It is said that he had to continually work with patience. His practice for some time was very difficult. It haunted him, that his past haunted him. And this is a story of his relinquishing of his suffering, as told by Rafe Martin. Then Angulimala roused himself and raised a great determination. Pushing his mind on and on, he allowed it to settle nowhere. He refused to give in to agony, 
or to seek refuge in hope, fear, or grief. The awful memories came again. He let them go. Visions of his childhood, of rippling laughter, running water, sunlight on flowers, a stream of sweet images flowed through his mind. He clung to nothing. Moment by moment, he continued patiently on, enduring all. Suddenly, his pain vanished, and his doubting, seeking mind lay shattered. For a timeless instant, he knew the taste of Nibbana, the fruit of the Buddha's path. It is said that he died a violent death, and yet at the time of his death, his mind remained unperturbed. It seems to me that, you know, if someone like Angulimala, who committed so much crime, violence, can forgive himself, and that the Buddha from the depth of his compassion could facilitate in the turning of his mind that it must be possible for us to forgive in this same way. Sometimes, too, we start to get the idea that, well, when we get perfect, then we can love ourselves. And I once had a very great teaching from uh, Hogan-san, a Zen master, on perfection now. It was the very first retreat I had sat with him. And during this retreat, he introduced me to the practice of Zen koans. And he described the koan as being the ultimate question when, which in itself is an answer by which one can cut off one's own karmic ego head and be born anew. So the first day he gave us a cone, I got very excited. I sat with my cone for you know, a period of time, and then it was like, bingo, the answer came. And it happened to be during a time where you could go and have an individual interview with him. So I was very excited, and I got up, I waited in line for my turn, and I went in, and I gave him my answer. And then he got this really puzzled expression on his face, and he asked me what the cone was that he had given. So I told him, and he looked at me a little bit funny, and he says, no, I never gave that cone. (laughs) So I just kind of sheepishly left the room. And so the next day he gave another one. And as he spoke this koan, it seemed so profound to me. And it was like, oh, ready to sit with this again. So there I am sitting away. And it was a few hours later. And suddenly I realized I'd forgotten all about the koan. And then I'd realized that I'd forgotten what the koan even was. I was a little bit embarrassed about this, but I I went back into his room and I told him what had happened. (laughs) And this time... He looked at me, and he actually rolled his eyeballs. (laughs) And then he said to me, he said, just go and sit perfectly. So I took this in. I sat there for a moment. And then I I was feeling a bit bewildered by this. And I said to him, 
do you know that you've just given me a future? <laughs> so he was really puzzled by this. And he says, how did I do that? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, if I'm going to become perfect, it's going to take some time. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, there was just these two brown eyes. Everything else in the room disappeared. And these two brown eyes are just blazing at me. And he says, perfection now. <laughs> and I simply bowed and left the room. <laughs> so it is for both ourselves and others that we don't need to be perfect in order to love. With all of our great imperfections, we can open up and reclaim our heritage accepting the conditions now as perfection now. As we're able to forgive, to open our hearts, the difficulties we face, the states of fear, anger, guilt, and shame naturally give way to the joy and well-being that comes from living with an open-hearted presence. So remembering to stay patient with the process, the unfolding of this journey. Remembering that until we are fully liberated, there will be times when our vision is clouded and we cannot see through to the truth. being patient with others, loving them despite their perceived faults. And we do this because this is what honors truth. It is an expression of truth. It was from a Sufi master. My life is complicated and still I suffer a lot, but it doesn't mean anything. It is ephemeral just a part of living. I also feel the suffering of the world deeply. I do what I can. Yet it is also very clear that things are as they are. And to have any helpful impact, my actions must come from the heart of peace. This is my goal, to show peace in the midst of it all. I'd like to end tonight with a quote from Ajahn Chah. I first read this quote when I was struggling with forgiveness. At the time, I was out in the country doing a self-retreat. It was in a very beautiful little retreat center where there was just three cabins. So it was very quiet, very still, surrounded by nature. Right before I'd gone on this retreat, I'd had an encounter was someone that had been very difficult and painful for me. So as I sat, sat in the midst of nature, many times it being calm and peaceful, and then a thought would come up of this event, and it would be just like a hook, and I'd grab it and bite it, and I'd start replaying the event. I'd start hashing it out. I'd start looking at it from every conceivable angle. 
and finding myself really caught in it. And then I read these words from Ajahn Chah, and it just helped me to get have a bigger perspective to hold it in. Upon hearing the words, I felt an Im- immediate calmness. If someone curses us and we have no feelings of self, the incident ends with the spoken words and we do not suffer. If unpleasant feelings arise, we should let them stop there, realizing the feelings are not us. He hates me. He troubles me. He is my enemy. A bhikkhu does not think like this, nor does one hold hold views of pride or comparison. If we do not stand up in the line of fire, we do not get shot. If there is no one to receive it, the letter is sent back. Moving gracefully through the world, not caught in evaluating each event, a bhikkhu becomes serene. This is the way of nibbana, emptiness and freedom. So in our forgiveness, we're following the way of nibbana, emptiness and freedom. And letting this give us the courage to bear that which seems unbearable. Knowing that others have walked this path before us, let us find courage from their efforts. Let us stand true to that that which is greater than our differences and learn to abide in our one true home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.